In Genesis chapter 18, at the very end of verse 25, Abraham is talking, he is praying with the Lord, and he says what is the title of our message today. He says these words, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? One of the most difficult questions to answer is what happens to little children when they die? What, what is their eternal destiny? That, of course, would include children who don't make it out of the womb alive. And it is a subject full of grief and pain for many of us. In fact, I know that some people stayed home this week and stay home when we do Sanctity of Life Sunday because of the difficulty. I don't judge them. I, as best I can, understand. Others in this church are always very kind and loving to me. This, when the Sunday comes around and, and says, Jim, why don't you just not talk about it? Because of how difficult it is. A few of the presenters we have had here over the years on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday uh, have told me that they were surprised that I even talk about it. I was surprised when I first heard that. I said, you mean you give the presentation and people talk about, they're like, everything but. <laughs> but so many of you, so many of us are, are touched by this I, I really believe with all of my heart that it would be pastorally irresponsible of me and, and wrong not to talk about this in some fashion. And so each year we try to take a, a different look at a different aspect of it. I think most people would say, if you say, do, do those little children or the unborn, do they go to heaven? Most people would say, well, of course they go to heaven. But for most people, it's, it's largely an emotional argument. And our emotions are quite unreliable. They're kind of like a ship in the sea. It depends upon which way the wind is blowing and how big the waves are. And I think it's far better to ground our hearts in the trustworthiness of the Word of God. But there is a problem with this question. The problem is, is that there is no clear text on this in the Bible. So we have to put some pieces together to get to some place. And I realize that I probably have you know, six to eight weeks worth of talking. Do any of you have to work, go to work in the next two months? So I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface today. But I do have material for the next few years. <laughs> The reality is, and this may shock some of you, that there have been many views throughout church history and there continue to be many views today. Some people say flat out no. They will not be going to heaven because they never trusted in Jesus Christ. Uh, their, their reasoning goes something like this. We are all born in sin. That is a true statement. That's what the scripture teaches. The, the, Jesus and the apostles taught that we are actually born not going to heaven. We are born condemned because of our sin nature. 
and, and we must believe or trust in Jesus Christ in order for that to be reversed. That is true. If that is your view, if, if you think no, uh, it's important to realize that, it, that you must have uh, compassion on the women and the men who this has been their experience. Others say they take the position, well, uh, they can go to heaven, but only if they've been baptized. Now, let's just take abortion, just put that to the side for a minute and just think of all the people who've had miscarriages and stillborn babies, very common in the ancient world. I'm going to get emotional for for a second, and I think that's a cruel position. Some would say it's only the elect. We've talked about that in our studies in Ephesians. We talked about that uh, last month, only the people that God has chosen to go to heaven. And uh, that's not as uh, ridiculous as it sounds because nobody goes to heaven unless God says they can. It's kind of like somebody knocks on your door and, and you're like, well, you know, you can't, you can't come in unless I let you in. And so we'll come back to that in a second. Other people would say, well, God knew who would choose him and who wouldn't choose him. And that's how he's decided. I don't know about that. Others would only say uh, that it's only the children of believers that go to heaven in such a situation, which means that you're making the child of the unbeliever, the unbeliever pay for the unbelief of the parents. That doesn't seem right, does it? Gregory Bishop of Nyssa from 372 to 376 said, uh, after death, they'll sort of come to some sort of an adult type of existence, and they will have the opportunity to believe. Now, it's interesting. That is actually a fairly popular belief, and increasingly it's becoming more popular, even among a lot of Bible scholars. Some people are what you call universalists. Universalists believe that everyone goes to heaven, something that the scriptures, Jesus and the apostles, absolutely never taught. Never taught. Uh, they, They taught what theologians call the dual destiny of humanity. That means that people will go to one of two destinies, heaven or hell, no in-between place. That is the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. The scripture is clear that God's one and only provision for the forgiveness of sins was accomplished by Jesus Christ's work on the cross. And salvation what we call heaven, then only comes to those Jesus words who repent and believe. We often use the wording turn and trust. Repent means to turn to God. Believe means to, in the Bible is used of putting your trust in Jesus instead of yourselves. Universalism denies that. Universalism denies the good news of the gospel and I would say the holiness of God. Now let's talk for a second about Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is talking to God not about, not about this subject. He's actually talking to them about the judgment of a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. 
a place where the wickedness was so bad, the pride was so bad that it had come up to heaven, if you will. And, and Abraham starts what I call the, the flea market prayer with God. He starts saying, well, you know, if there's 50 righteous people, would you torch the place? And God's like, if I could find 50. And, you know, they keep going down, and they just, there's just not a lot of righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's, he knows that it's time for judgment. But he also knows, and, and, he, and he prays for mercy to be extended to others. And in the midst of that talking and praying, he says to God, he, he reminds God of something God already knows, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, it's posed in our Bibles as a question, but I would say it's a question as much as it is a statement. It's not wrong to pray the Bible back to God. It's not wrong to remind God of what he promised. He knows what he promised, but you're allowed to, you're allowed to say to him, well, you said you would do this. And Abraham knows that God is just. He knows that God is righteous, that he has every reason to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but he also knows that he's good, and he also knows that God will always do what is right. He will always do what is right. Now, let's just stop for one second and let's absorb that. Just just sit on that for, for just a moment. Think about all that goes on in your life and, and tie it to that God always does what is right. If you're here today and you would tell me that you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus, first off, if you're not, we're glad that you're here. You are most welcome in this place. Please come up and say hi after the service. I'd love to meet you. Or if you just say, hey, all this is kind of new to me, I'd love to meet you. But if you say you have faith, you have to believe it's true that God always does what is right. Now, I am not so naive to think that it's always easy to believe that. There will be times in our lives when we will question that at times in pain and in suffering and in desperation and in intense unknown, that will be a question. Will, is, does God do right? But at some point, that needs to become a statement of faith for a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I've, I've named some of the more popular positions on this. And to lead into the position that I personally take. I'm not going to be like, oh, you can't come here if you take a different position than me. I personally take the position that the ones that Jesus referred to as the little ones, we'll call them inside the womb or not out for too long. I take the position that those who die in that state go to heaven. Now, I don't take that position out of uh, sentimentalism. That's actually one of, the, one of the theories. They call it sentimentalism. People who just go, you know, hey, you know, I believe it. You know, that's, a, that's all that matters. Well, that's not really a good, that's not good logic. Rather, by looking at various passages in the Bible, I think we get some clues, and I'm only going to be able to cover a few today. 
because, you know, we don't have a few months. So one I want us to look at is Romans chapter 1. Greatest theological book ever written. The Apostle Paul says this, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Well, now, now when you think wrath, don't think the way we are wrath. You know, we're like throwing stuff around the house. Right? It's like, that's not what God's wrath is. It's just his, his response to unrighteousness because he is totally righteous. His, his response to sin because he is sinless. His response to uh, unholiness because he is holy. And it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, all sin of men who suppress the truth, who suppress the word of God, who suppress the gospel, who suppress their conscience in unrighteousness. So people who suppress God inside their conscience, inside their hearts, inside their minds, however you want to put it, they're going to have to answer for that to God. Now, it seems to me that an unborn child or even a small child is incapable of suppressing a truth that they have no ability to comprehend. He continues, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God said God has shown it to them. Now, now we have to ask ourselves, is he talking about babies in a womb? Is he talking about little tiny ones running around? Verse 20 is important. He says, for since the creation of the world, so Paul's a creationist, for since the creation of the world, his, God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. What is he saying? That you can actually, when we go outside, you and I can see the creative power of God. We can look at all of these things and go, how does all of this fit together? It's, this, it's incredible the way it all works. For me, the, the math of, of some of the other theories, just does, it just doesn't work. Too many zeros on the ends of, of what the odds are of these, the, the whole world just coming together without somebody pulling it together, creating it, and designing it. So he says that, that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, who, the people who suppress the truth, are without excuse. Now think about this for a second. What does an unborn or little child really know about nature? Do you really, do you really, you know, you know if we went into the nursery and we took, you know, one of the, one of the six-month-olds and we brought them outside and go, what do you think of this beautiful creation? What would you expect to, what would you expect that my parents, you know, the parents are more like, we just want the potty train, Pastor Jim. We really don't, don't care what they think about, about nature. So, here the, so they don't know anything about it. And so here the Apostle Paul tells us that even people who haven't heard the gospel have seen God's power in nature and they were, are without excuse before God. 
Now, a lot of people say, well, what about the person on the island who's never heard about Jesus and the gospel? Well, God says, I'm going to have an ability to interact with them on that. Honestly, friend, I don't say this in 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 a condescending way. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, I am far more concerned for you than I am for the person on the island. Because being an American, you've heard, and even by the end of what we've already said you've heard, and what we're going to say you've heard. The the Apostle Paul seems to be saying that if these people didn't see that nature, that might be an excuse. Might be. But the people who have seen have no excuse. Well, I think an unborn child hasn't seen. I think a little one has no capacity to understand the ability to put the pieces of the puzzle together of God and nature. In other words, they don't have or never have had access to the evidence of nature in order to receive it or reject it. They, 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 they lack the capacity to make any decision based upon God and nature. My point is, without that opportunity, it seems to me that God extends grace and mercy to them because he does what is right, because he is good. And I said earlier that some people say because they are elected or they are chosen, and because he is good, because he is right, he then elects and chooses them based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand that the people in the Old Testament, you say, well, they didn't have Jesus. They were looking ahead. We are the people who are looking behind. I think that God just some says, you know what? I'm, going, I'm willing, and Jesus' work is really God's out of time, so he saw the beginning from the end. And I'm going to grant them eternal life. A few more passages. Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul says, For the wages of sin is death. Sin pays dreadful wages. We sin and we die. That's why we die, because of sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's remember that. Eternal life, heaven, is what? It is a gift. Now, some people will, will say that, um, well, you know, I, I, don't, I think if we're all born with a sin nature, which is true, it's not right to say that these, these children are innocent. I will, I will say two things about that. Number one, I will say that um, I, will, I, will, I will let you allow that today. Today. We don't have time to go there today. So you can, you can have that today. But I will tell you this. An innocent one was crucified on that cross. And it's because of him that all of the guilty can be charged as, counted as being innocent. You see, when it says the wages of sin is death, an unborn child has not had the opportunity to sin. They have not had the opportunity to rebel against God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, the apostle writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
Boy, that should terrify us. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Another version says that we will get what is due us. Another version says we will be repaid for what we have done, whether good or bad. Here the Apostle Paul is teaching us that we will all face a judgment based on the deeds we have done or not done, what we were supposed to do, in our physical bodies. This means that we all have a choice. We will either answer for our sins or we can believe the gospel. We can put our trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ will take the punishment for our sins. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Remember double imputation? Where what happens is when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, our sins are transferred to him and his righteousness, his perfection is transferred to us. However, is it right to say that unborn and, little, and or little children have committed such sins in the body? I think not. It seems to me because they don't yet know right from wrong, they are under special care in the arms of God. Let's go to another one that's classic. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me, let me paint the scene for you. King David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you don't know what adultery means, it means that uh, he took some other dude's wife. And she got pregnant. And so, to make matters worse, he was the king. What did he do? He said, put her husband out on the front lines. And he got killed. So, in effect, he, he contracted his murder. So in the course of time, a child is born from this relationship and, and, and the child gets sick. And we're told this, 2 Samuel 12, 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. We're told that went on for seven days. Seven days, he doesn't eat. He's laying on the ground. He's pleading with God that God would heal uh, this child of his. And then the baby died. What's next is very interesting. We're told that he, he got up. And he's probably looking pretty ragged after seven days, right? And he, and he washed himself up. And he anointed himself. And he went to the house of the Lord. He went to church, he went to the temple, and he worshipped the Lord. Now his servants, he's the king, remember, they're totally confused by this. And I'm just going to put it in our kind of language. They're like, what's up with you, dude? Like, what is this? Like, I don't get it. You, you were more upset when, when he was sick than when he died. That, that makes absolutely no sense. Listen to what he says. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22 and 23. And he, King David, said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? 
can I bring him back again? And then look at what he says next. He says, I shall go to him, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So he's looking forward to some sort of a reunion with this child. Now, um, does that sound hopeful to you? If it's just death, he's like, oh, I can't wait to be, you know, worm food in the ground next to him. That's probably not what he's saying. He's, he's, he's not thinking they're both going to be in hell, are they? No, he is expecting some sort of a glorious reunion. You say, well, maybe he's just sentimental. Well, let's dig a little further. He wrote these words in Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I will see your face, God's face, in righteousness. Well, here on earth, we are not righteous, but through faith, we are imputed righteousness. We just talked about the double imputation. We are considered righteous in God's eyes. So when will your face see God's face? When you meet him in the next life, correct? So that's what he's talking about. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Now, in the Bible, often sleep refers to death. So he's looking forward to the next life. He's looking looking forward to, to heaven, where he's going to be what? Reunited with this son. You say that still might be sentimentalism. Well, he had many sons, and one of them was named Absalom. Absalom was a sinner and a traitor of the worst sort. He met people at the gate where matters were decided, and he basically told them, hey, uh, my father doesn't care about you, but if I was king, I would. He was a usurper. He took the kingdom from him. And in the course of events, he died of his coup, of his takeover. And David could not be consoled. He said, oh, Absalom, Absalom, would that I have died in your place. Would that I have died for you. That's the gospel message. But because he was not the Messiah, he couldn't. Why was he so distraught at the death of his son? Because he knew his son's eternal destiny. He knew he would never see him again. He knew that Absalom was not a follower of Yahweh. And that was it. And that hope was gone. Much more could be said, and I I realize that some of you may disagree with the position I take. And that's okay. All I ask is that you have sensitivity towards those that have lost children. You know, most people I know believe you go to heaven by being a good person or by doing good works. Can you say that an unborn child or an infant is a good person? Can you say that they have done good works? I think you can't. Interesting, the scripture teaches that there will be large amounts of people in heaven. It's this scene where you look, you read in the Bible, and you're like, does God think there's going to be like millions of people there? Like, I'm like the only guy in my neighborhood, in my office, who believes. He really needs to rework the math here. 
most people don't put their trust in God's provision for heaven. They don't put their trust in Jesus. So how is it possible that heaven could be filled with so many people? Well, one explanation is all of the unborn and all of the infants who died early and over history that is millions and millions and millions. You know, I could remember talking to my grandmother, 14 people in our in her family. She said, you know, you always knew you were going to lose a few. That was only 100 years ago. The truth is that people are saved by grace. God saves people. Now it says we're saved by grace through faith and it is a gift. So which is, which is, the, which is the gift, the, the faith or the being saved? Exactly. Yes. People are not saved by the way they live. This may ruffle a few feathers, but if it's a gift of God, then you're not even saved by your decision to trust Christ. That's what we call decisional regeneration, that I'm, I'm, I've been made born again. The Holy Spirit has come to live within me because of something I decided. That's, that's unbiblical, but you still have to believe. You still have to believe. Infant dying is fairly rare today, but not in the ancient world. Some, you, can, you can check it out on the internet. Some societies lost a third of the kids, some half, some, some three quarters, because they didn't have all of the medical stuff. You know, if this was, if this was 500 years ago and, and, and you had five kids, you probably had three or four that died before the age of five or before the age of 10. Yet, on the other hand, abortion, as we know, it is more popular now than in the ancient world. Sorry. I did better in the first service with this part. But just imagine the amazing grace of God saving and reuniting all of those babies with their parents who trusted Jesus. I got to be honest with you, that takes my breath away. You know, people say to me, is my dog going to be in heaven? I go, well, can't really tell from the Bible. There's one debatable passage in Ecclesiastes. But God's that good, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> At least I won't be allergic. <laughs> Will your unborn or your little one that you lost be in heaven? God's that good. It won't surprise me. You might ask, why doesn't the Bible tell us specifically? It would be a lot easier if it did. My answer may shock you. 
I don't think the Bible tells us, uh, for our good and the safety of children. You know, if the Bible gave us an age, and sometimes we talk about something called the age of accountability, the age when a child knows right from wrong and people want to put a number on it, age 12, age 13. You know, I, I think it varies for everybody. I don't, I'm not kind of into that. I think, you know, if, if you're going to have a, you know, some sort of a ceremony, it's my, you, then it's better to have an age or something like that. But, but if the Bible gave us a number, then you and I both know that weird cults and deranged people would kill kids thinking they're helping them. Thinking that, oh, I'm just sending them to heaven. Right? That is not the worship of God, the God of the Bible. That is the Old Testament worship of a false god, punk god, little g, called Moloch. And God told his people, stay away from Moloch and stay away from his people because they're wicked. Others would, would make excuses not to evangelize kids. We're always making excuses not to evangelize people, aren't you? We're like, oh, this, you know, I'm not going to tell them because, you know, they, you know I, don't, I don't want them to be able to reject it. Pastor Neil and I were talking about this the other day, like, you know, people saying, well, knocking on doors doesn't work anymore. And I always tell people, why do you seem so happy about it? <laughs> right? We, we do whatever we can do to get out of telling people about Jesus or they'll make excuses not to evangelize kids or, or those with ment, uh, uh, limited mental capabilities. Why, why doesn't God give us a verse, some... Some doctors and medical professionals who are followers of Jesus might not fight as hard to save lives because they might be like, oh, well, they're going to go to heaven. Followers of Jesus would be less pro-life if God gave us a verse. You see, the scripture does tell us that, that God knows the baby in the womb. He is, he is knitting and forming that little one. And it also tells us that, that God has a plan for lives, and, and, and we don't want to make that decision for someone. So much more could be said, but I think what's most important for some of you is your guilt or your sorrow can be turned to joy. If you repent and believe, you turn to God and put your trust in Jesus and you put your trust in God's goodness. The great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who lived in the 1800s, lived in, lived in an age when, boy, speaking to a large congregation that he had, there were so many who lost infant children. And, and the great, one of the greatest evangelists the earth has ever seen made this plea to those who had lost children but had never put their trust in Jesus Christ. And I think he would have me make the same plea to you today. He told those parents, your children cry out to you from heaven, come to me, mommy. Come to me, Daddy. Put your trust in Jesus Christ 
so we can be together again. Like King David, put your trust in God's forgiveness of sins and look forward to being reunited with the child that you have lost in a joyful eternity with your Savior. Just imagine with me for a second how your tears over the one that you have lost in whatever way. And God says he's kept all your tears in a bottle. And some of you have big bottles full of tears. And just imagine God walking up to you or maybe someone has walked up to you and said, I know you, I know you. And you will know who they are. And you will have this joyful reunion and God will say, oh, do you want your tears back? And you might, I don't want those things. I don't want those things because I now have tears of joy. To our young men and women that may be facing this issue now, this situation now or in the future, let the gospel of Jesus Christ drown out the gospel of the culture. The gospel of our culture says, do what's best for you. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, do what's best. Do what's right. Come to the cross, gaze upon the Son of God dying in your place for your sins. Look what Jesus did for you. See God's justice for sins and the mercy he offers to sinners. If you have had an abortion, uh, trust Jesus and know that God does not see you as a woman who had an abortion because you are 100% forgiven. If you are the man who paid for an abortion, or as I said uh, at a previous Sunday, Sanctity of Life, humans, uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. If you are like me, a friend who just drove someone. For those of you who are new, when I was 19 years old, I drove a friend to have an abortion. I was not the father. She didn't want the father to know. I walked into a room and there were 10 women and there was 10 couples in there. I was the only one who wasn't the father. And I watched eight women walk out. Ten years before I became a Christian. I went into that place that day with absolutely no opinion on abortion. And when I watched those eight women walk out, and I held my friend crying for the rest of that day and into the night, I was pro-life long before I was a Christian. If that's you, if you're the man who paid for it or, or the friend who drove someone there, it is important how God sees you. If you have asked for forgiveness, put your trust in Jesus, you are forgiven. And so if you're that person, any one of those people, hear what God says to you if you are in Christ. You are my beloved daughter. And in you, I am well pleased. If you are that man who has has done this and you have put your trust in Christ, hear God speak to you today. You are my beloved son. And in you, 
I am well pleased. You might not dis, you might not agree with my position on this, but will you agree with me and with Abraham? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That is 100% true. So trust in his goodness. Rest in his character. Even in the most difficult and challenging and life-altering times of your life. Trust God who gave his beloved son to us. Like Abraham said, to do right And when you trust God to do right in everything, for that reason alone, you and I don't have to have all the answers. It is enough to know that he will do right. Trust in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection that Jesus died to preserve life. And we are called to do the same. God sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me because God is pro-life. And God knows the wages of sin is death. And God proved he was pro-life by by saving the souls of men and women who put their trust in his son. Today, if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you do, the scripture teaches that you will move from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he proved it to us by raising his son from the dead. Well, let's pray.